Welcome back, everybody, to uh, our Uncaged Bible Study. I'm excited to be back. I know um, you're worried about Juliet. Juliet's great. She actually wants to come back next week to the study with the baby. So if you come next week, you'll probably get to meet Kara. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we're excited. Juliet's excited to be back. She's recovering very quickly. Um, but we're excited to finish up Revelation because we had to stop right when we got to the good news. Um, so we're excited to dive into chapter 19 today. Uh, before we do that, we'll pray really quickly uh, and dive into the scriptures. So bow your heads with me. <sighs> Father God, thank you so much just for who you are. Thank you for everything you've blessed us with, especially your word that gives us a chance to know who you are, to know your plan, and to guide us. God, we thank you for what we're about to study over these next few weeks as we close up the book of Revelation and we see the great news, the chapters that represent the title of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, where we see your return in glory. God, help us to open our hearts and open our eyes as we open up these chapters and get a new and exciting glimpse of who you are and what your plan is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So chapter 19, I'm just going to dive in. It's going to be a little bit different this week. I'm breaking the chapter 19 up into three sections. Hopefully we get through all three and through the whole chapter today. Uh, but if not, I'll stop at section two and we'll finish up next week. So here we go. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, singing Amen and Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So this first little piece that I just read, it's not the whole portion of the first section. This sort of summarizes what we talked about in our last session in chapter 18. So this is the idea of the great harlot of Babylon has been destroyed because Jesus is returned. He's returning, right? He's coming back. And so the great harlot of both chapter 17 and 18, both of the religious system and the political and economic system that was set up during the tribulation period, and all of the evil uh, and anti-God worship that happened during this time and the evil that existed is going up in smoke because Jesus is setting up his kingdom. That's the point of that, those first few verses. And we go back to verse six. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In your version, it might be almighty. Lord God almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. 
And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what's happening right here in this section, this is the end of the first section of chapter 19, is John has given this this vision in front of an angel. And he's so overwhelmed by it, he bows down and he starts to worship. And the angel says to him, do not do that, only worship God. And so that's that little end statement is all about. The angel is pointing him to the fact that do not worship anybody but God because I am not above you. I don't deserve more than you. I don't deserve your worship. Only God does. Uh, I should not be the object of your worship. But before that last piece, you see a whole lot of reference to the wedding. The wedding has come. The marriage supper of the Lamb is here. Um, And then there are guests who are invited, a great multitude who comes to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what is that talking about? Who are the guests, first of all? Well, the guests are not the church because the church is the bride. So the bride is already there. Who else is invited? Well, who else is invited by a lot of commentators would be the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints, those who came to Christ before Pentecost and after the rapture of the church. The reason for this dispensation, it's called dispensationalism. It separates scripture into the different time periods um, in the covenants that God is dealing with people. The Old Testament covenant is not the church. The church started on Pentecost. And so the Old Testament saints have a different promise, but the same blessing of heaven. So they would be invited to the wedding, but they're not the bride of Christ because they're not the church. And the same thing with the tribulation saints. They didn't come to Christ during the church age. They're not part of the church. They receive the same blessing in going through the kingdom and reigning with Christ, but they're not the bride of Christ because they're not a part of the church age. And so this reference to the wedding and to the church can be best explained in the Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, we briefly covered this when we talked about chapter 4, but tonight we're going to get into a real in-depth understanding of the Jewish wedding ceremony. And the best description and teaching or writing I've ever seen on how this relates is by Pastor Paul Laboutier. He's a pastor in Oregon. Uh, So a lot of this came from him, but I'm just going to try to do it justice and share with you how this breakdown works and what it means. So we're going to go through each step of the wedding ceremony and how it points to Jesus. Because the last phrase in that first section, worship God for the the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the word and the Jewish customs that are written into the scriptures point to Jesus always. So we're going to see how this specific custom relates to the scriptures Jesus' life, and the church to point to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the first step in the Jewish wedding ceremony would be what is called the selection. This means that the father of the bridegroom, so the father of the male, of the son, 
would choose a bride for his son, usually at a very young age. And they would strike a deal with the girl's parents. And so there's a selection done. If you read all throughout Paul's letters and even in 1 Peter, you see this idea of being selected or being chosen by God. Even Jesus's ministry, he chose his disciples and he invited them to come along. This idea of selection uh, and being selected by the father for the son. The second step is the purchase of the bride. So there would be a payment to basically make up for the loss of the family member to the, the daughter's family. And they would pay like a, like almost like a dowry payment. Um, and the purchase for the church is the blood of Christ. You see that referenced again in 1 Peter. You see that referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, that we were paid for with a price, and that price is the blood of Christ. So the second step is the purchase, the purchase cost of the bride. And then the third step is the betrothal period. This is most closely related to what we think of as an engagement. So this is the bride is of marrying age, and they come to a contract or consent, uh, the husband and the wife. She's been paid for, and the betrothal period starts. At this point in the Jewish ceremony, they would even have to, if they wanted to split up, they would have to actually get a divorce, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage. This is very similar to, if you look at the Gospels, Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary had not been together yet, but they were betrothed. And when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he said that he wanted to divorce her quietly, even though they hadn't been they hadn't consummated their marriage yet. This is the betrothal period. It's a season of commitment. There are promises offered to the bride at this point in time. And so if you think about Christ and the promises that are offered to the church because of our relationship with him and our commitment to him. And then the next step, step four, is consent. So even though all of these steps took place, the woman would still have to say yes. Uh, if you think of the story of Isaac and Rebekah in the book of Genesis, Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, and the servant went out to Laban's family, met Rebekah, and she fit the criteria that the servant had prayed for, and he went to Laban's family and paid the price, but then he said to Rebekah that basically offered her the choice to come if she wants to, and she chose to come and marry Isaac. And so there is a consent period. So not only are you chosen, not only were you purchased, but it also requires a consent on our side for Jesus to accept what he has done for us to be a part of the marriage. We must accept what has been done for us, accept the purchase, the cost, and the commitment. Now, the fifth step is what's called the cup of the covenant. So this is the marriage covenant. It's sort of symbolic to embrace the marriage that is going to take place. Think of the Last Supper. And Jesus drank the cup of wine. Communion was set in place. And it looked very much like the cup of the covenant. A brand new covenant was being formed. In fact, Matthew 26, verse 29 Jesus said this when he drank the cup after he said, this is my 
blood which is spilled out for you. He said this, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So there would be a cup of the covenant where they would share a glass of wine together. And then there would be another cup of wine that they would share at the marriage supper to solidify the whole process. And Jesus, in the Last Supper, set that idea up with, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until you are with me in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the sixth step is gifts are offered to the bride. Now, for us, Jesus, and the gifts are there because during the betrothal period, the husband, the groom, is separated from the bride for an unbeknownst period of time. So what happens is she, he gives her gifts to remind her, to remind the bride of the groom that is coming at an unknown time. Now, Jesus even tells us uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, uh, verse 26, he says that he will grant us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit testifies of him and reminds us of the things he said. It is a gift that the church has received to remind us of the groom that is coming in the time that we are apart. Because Jesus also said, it is good for me to go away, but I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will testify, give us power, and remind us of the groom that is on his way back. Seventh step is the departure of the groom. The groom goes away. He heads back to his father's house. And during this period, he is under the supervision of the father. At that point, he is building an addition or property. He's putting together shelter on his father's property or adding an addition onto his house that can sustain his bride. And he cannot go back to the bride until the father says the work is done. So even the son doesn't know when he'll be back to collect his bride. And the bride has no idea. She has to be ready all the time. And so this is very much in line with the John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you in my father's house, there are many rooms or mansions. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, he is departing from them and he's going to prepare a place for them, just like the Jewish ceremony wedding, and he will come back to receive them onto himself. And step eight is the consecration of the bride. At this point, she is now set apart. The covenant has been set. She is set aside for this man alone. She is dedicated and committed to only this husband. So for the church, for us, we are set apart by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we are set apart to serve and worship only our God, only Christ. And you can be tested during this period of time. And it is our job to not allow the worship of anything else over our God or our Christ. You are set aside for him. And we are supposed to be a virgin bride, uh, not giving ourselves over to any other worship. Step nine the return of the bridegroom. So 
at that time when his father says that it is the appropriate time to come back to collect the bride, he collects his bride. This typically would happen late in the evening or late at night. But this very much reminds me of Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them were ready. They had oil in their lamps. They were ready to go. They were prepared for the, the groom to come back at any time. The other five were not. They had no oil. When they, get to, when they went to go buy oil for their lamps, they were left behind. And Jesus is telling us something really important as he's portraying the marriage ceremony to us as we get to the later steps, that we must be ready at all times. We must have the oil within us. The Holy Spirit is represent, oil represents the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit we must have within us to be received by Christ. We must be prepared and ready with the Holy Spirit because we've been consecrated and set apart by the Holy Spirit for the bridegroom. And then the 10th step is called the home taking. So the bridegroom has returned and the bride goes back with the groom to the father's house. At this point there, now the wedding guests might be there, but they don't go into the feast yet. The bride and the groom go off into a separate location by themselves and they consecrate the marriage, they consummate the marriage, and they're there for seven days or one week. And this, to me, again, points to the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, where the church will go into heaven and be caught up for the week-long ceremony of consummating or the, the marriage to the Lamb. We will be with Jesus for that prophetic week, the 70th week of Daniel, known as the tribulation period. And then the final step, which is what we just read about, was, is going to happen in chapter 19 of Revelation, when Jesus is on his way back, is the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper is the last piece. The guests are there, those who have been invited to the wedding, and the bride and groom come out to meet the guests, and they share in the feast with the guests, and the wedding supper is consummated. So that paints a picture of the whole story that we've been talking about in our relationship with Jesus and Revelation and the church's relationship to the story that's picked up in end time prophecy. And that the church age ends, we are raptured by our groom, taken back, the home taking happens. We are there to participate in the first seven days, the week of the marriage, and we come back with Christ to the wedding supper. Part of this is actually painted by uh, in the book of Jude, it was prophet, he quotes Enoch, actually someone who was from before the flood. Jude quotes Enoch, who sees, Jesus, who sees the Lord coming back with tens of thousands of his saints at the end, on the day of the Lord. So that is the first section talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I hope that that made it easier to understand the church's relationship to end time prophecy and how Jesus played out the marriage ceremony with the church and what that looks like to us as he constantly refers to the Jewish wedding ceremony when he's talking to his disciples or even speaking in the book of Revelation. Now, starting in verse 11, things get a little more intense. So I'm going to read this whole, this whole section and then I'm going to kind of break it down. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is Jesus returning to the earth in all of his glory, and he is being followed by the armies of heaven, all clothed in white as well which would likely include the saints, which represent what Jude was talking about in verses 14 and 15. And out of the mouth of Jesus is the word of God, the sharp two-edged sword, and all evil is wiped out in front of Christ. He just destroys them at the battle of Armageddon. If you remember in Revelation chapter 16, there's a reference to the battle of Armageddon. Actually, uh, I'll read it. Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Um, This is the sixth bold judgment. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So what that's saying is that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon, Satan, out of them seems to come, these three demons that look like frogs, uh, and they go to the kings of the earth, and they somehow convince them to gather together in Armageddon for the final battle against evil, uh, which is where Jesus will return, and the sword comes out of his mouth, and he's treading the wine press. So what's happening there is these armies gather together, and they try to stand in defiance against God. Jesus returns with his army of saints on a white horse, and the sword comes out of his mouth, and treading the wine press is really, it's talking about what it looks like when you stomp on grapes that are up to like knee high. And so this is an idea of the blood that ensues from this battle as Jesus destroys evil uh, and the the field of Armageddon or the field of Megiddo in Israel, which is at the base of Mount Megiddo in the Valley of Jezreel, will be flowing with blood, and his white tunic will turn red from the amount of blood that is unsued from this uh, victory that Jesus has over evil and those who refuse to worship him. That's a pretty important, significant portion of Jesus's return. And you would think, are there other places that talk about this in scripture? So I want to read a couple of things to you because I think it's incredibly interesting to see how these connect. So we're going to look first at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Now think about the words of the verses we just read. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Batra? This one who is, in, who is glorious in his apparel. Traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who would be mighty to save? Who would be wearing these garments of glorious apparel? Jesus. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. 
Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them brought down their strength to the earth. It's almost identical to what we read in Revelation 19 in the return of Christ, treading the winepress in his fury and anger at their blasphemy, basically. Now, there are other pictures of Christ's return. And we'll see one here in Revelation, or I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 14, verses three through five. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, the ones who have gathered where? Fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it to the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall Reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord God will come and all the saints to you. This is saying when Jesus returns, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And when he returns, the mountain will split into two from north to south and creating a valley that runs east to west. The interesting thing about this is when Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And as the disciples are looking at Jesus' ascent, two angels show up and ask the disciples, what are you looking at? Because the one who has left will return in the same way. So Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. He's prophesied to return to the Mount of Olives in Zechariah chapter 12. And the angels state that that's exactly what's going to happen from the place where Jesus ascends into heaven. But what will be the feeling for the people who are left? What will be the feeling of the Israelites who are left when they see this happen, when they see Jesus coming? It's described to us in Zechariah chapter 12. This is verse 10 and 11. It says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace in supplication. So they're going to receive grace and supplication from Jesus when he returns. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Who was pierced? Jesus. They will look on the one who was crucified, their own Messiah, and they will see as they, they will finally understand the one that they pierced was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. So we will look on they will look on me whom they have pierced, yes, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. What's the plain of Megiddo? Armageddon, the valley of Armageddon at the foot of Mount Armageddon in the valley of Jezreel. So that picture becomes really clear as you see multiple scriptures come together. 
And you see again in Jude chapter, verses 14 and 15 that he's coming back with tens of thousands of his saints, with a great multitude of his followers. So the picture becomes clear. There are some other verses I'm going to give to you to look up. Uh, we're not going to get into it tonight, but they also share this same storyline. There are even more that point to this exact moment in Scripture. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 24, verses 27 through 31. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, this picture of Jesus coming back on a white horse, the sword coming out of his mouth, ready to tread the wine press and wreak havoc on evil, is very contrast to the picture we see of Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem for Passion Week. And that picture was also prophesied by Zechariah. He said that he would ride in on the colt, the foal of a donkey, in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And Jesus did that when he started Passion Week. He rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. So that's how he went walking into the time period when he knew he was going to be crucified and broken for our sins. But at this stage, Jesus is coming back in judgment. Those who have rejected him and rejected his offering of forgiveness of sin through his death on the cross will be dealt with at this moment. And it's a strange dichotomy between those two things. And the interesting thing is, in biblical times, they represented something very meaningful. If a king rode into a city on a donkey, it meant that he came in peace. He wasn't going to wage war onto the city. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in his first coming because he's coming in peace to present an opportunity to be saved from sin to purchase his bride. Now his bride's been purchased. They've been consecrated. They've gone through the steps of the wedding ceremony, and now it's time for us to come back and enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in doing so, we will reign with him and destroy the evil of the world, those who have rejected Christ. And how does he come back? On a horse. If a king would have ridden in on a horse in biblical times, you would have known that it meant war. And so he is responding to those who have gathered together in Armageddon, in Megiddo, to wage war against him. And he is waging war right back at them in destruction. So that's the second section. The third will start, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the king, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a pretty gruesome picture. Jesus has returned. Um, he sees the false prophet and the beast, and he throws them alive into the lake of fire to burn for eternity. Um, their wicked ways are never to be worried about again. And then everyone else is killed. Who ha- and everyone else who has accepted the mark of the beast is killed by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. The valley is run with blood, and birds feed on the flesh of the dead. That's the picture there. And you see in this moment, the response would be the mourning of the people who didn't accept the mark as they understand, especially the Jews, as they look up to see their Messiah returning, who they rejected, and they realized that they pierced and mocked. And every time they heard about Jesus fulfilling prophecy, they didn't believe it because they only read rabbinical writings and not what the scripture said. And they mourn and they experience grace for the first time as their Messiah is finally there, which is really the ultimate fulfillment of Romans chapter 9 through 11. Paul spent three chapters in his great letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans is the ultimate understanding of Christian doctrine, of what it means to be a follower of Christ, of what it means to be part of the church, And he separated three chapters specifically to let us know that God is still dealing with Israel and he will save Israel and he will redeem Israel. And that is chapters 9 through 11. And at this moment, they will look up and see the one they have pierced and experience his grace finally. And that will have been fulfilled what Paul wrote about in Romans 9 through 11. And this is as far as we're going to get today. We'll start in chapter 20 and we'll discuss what the millennial kingdom looks like as Jesus reigns on earth because he's finally returned. And there's a thousand year period where Jesus reigns and it's the perfect environment finally on earth. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we get to see what eternity looks like after the millennial kingdom and God sets up a new heaven and a new earth for us to reign or live with him in. We will reign with him during the millennial kingdom. I say this because we we walked through a large section of Revelation chapters 6 through 18, where we deal with judgments and a whole lot of stuff that is not easy to swallow sometimes when we think of Jesus. But the good news is here. He is coming back. He's returning. And when he does, he will set up this great kingdom where evil doesn't have a foothold anymore. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. And as you'll see in chapter 20, Satan himself is thrown into the pit for a thousand years. So we can experience life without temptation where Jesus will rule in righteousness and we'll finally get to see what that environment looks like. And that news is coming. And this is the good part of Revelation, the reason you read the book. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are and for what your plan is. God, for generations, we have prayed the prayer you asked us to pray. Jesus taught his disciples to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This is the answer to that prayer, this book. Your kingdom coming to earth where you reign for a thousand years and your will is done here and we finally get to see it. That is the fulfillment of this and God, we look forward to that. But God, we don't know when it will happen. And in the meantime, it is our job to be your ambassadors and to occupy the earth and to present your gospel so that as few as possible don't have to experience the harshness of chapters 6 through 18. God, I thank you for your love and mercy and your forgiveness and your grace. I know that you're also a judge. And there are those who are going to experience your judgment in a way we certainly don't wish on them. So with the time that we have on this earth, help us to spread that good news of your grace so that they may experience the, the wedding supper. In Jesus' name, amen.